Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my gosh. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. So um, I I live in Seattle now, but I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, and my parents were both from the East Coast. My dad was actually um, Canadian. He was from Toronto. And my mom was from Baltimore. And they met there and moved to Oklahoma in the mid-70s. And very much, I think, did not expect to stay. I think they thought of themselves as coastal people. And so I grew up in this place where my family kind of never never um, planned to be. And, um, you know, in many ways, um, well, so my father was a doctor. And so I, I grew up with a, a lot of privilege getting to travel and all kinds of things. Um, and see other places and understand that um, that Oklahoma was just one place. Um, but really, we were very much about home cooking. Um, my dad was a very, very avid home cook and would unwind at the end of the day after seeing cancer patients all day, um, would unwind by opening up the fridge and sort of doing off the cuff cooking and he was um very much a, like an equal appreciator of um like bushes baked beans but also things that seemed very exotic at the time um where we were like endive um mm -hmm. and uh and so and he was very much like a he was a real gourmand like he took such like real pleasure in in cooking and in sharing food um as a kid it was actually like really embarrassing to me like the pleasure that he took in in cooking well for our family um he would always say or he would frequently like lean back from the table and say uh you know we eat better at home than most people do in restaurants and he, it was so <laughs> insufferable um and so braggy um and yet at the same time like uh it was so him and so much about the pride that he took in um in like cooking and finding food that he had had in other finding ingredients he had had only in other places and introducing them to me um so it was very much a um, like a very 80s food loving scene. Um, <laughs> my mom also did a lot of cooking and was very much I think of her as like the the baker in the household. But I mean we had a, a a pretty like idyllic you know sit down to dinner together every night situation when I was growing up, and I'm really grateful. For that, I had no idea how lucky I was to have two parents who put such care and attention into food, whether we were eating, you know, hamburgers or, you know, a roasted chicken my dad had fussed over for a couple hours. Right, right. 
And, you know, your latest book, The Fixed Stars, is not a food memoir, but in it, there is a lot of tension between restaurant cooking and home cooking, like being at the restaurant versus being at home for dinner. How has this tension changed for you since you stopped working for the restaurants you co-founded? Like, has the role of food in your life changed since you you exited those? Yeah, for me, there's tremendous relief. Um, So I I was never... (laughs) Um, I actually, I always love reading your writing about, um, you know, uh, all the the chefs that you bring into your interviews, whether you're writing about politics or love or whatever, because um, you are so, you have so much more like fl- fluency in your talking about the restaurant world than I feel like I ever did, <laughs> despite having been very much like steeped in it. I was never um a restaurant creature and i i um i came to co-found and and co-own two um three sort of restaurants because the man i was married to um had worked in restaurants off and on since he was a teenager um like all over the place pizza hut um, Balthazar all over the place. Um, and he was trying to find a way for us to be able to keep living in Seattle, um, where there were few jobs in the profession that he was trained in and is trained in, which is music composition. Um, and so he thought, you know, I love cooking. He and I both loved cooking. Um, and what is a way that that we could take this thing that we love and that he could use it to sort of build um, a way for us to make money and live in the city we wanted to live in. Mm-hmm. And so he is, Brandon is um, endlessly energetic and basically taught himself uh, with the help of a couple of really generous mentors, how to open a restaurant um, on a shoestring. And we did that in 2009. We opened a restaurant called Delancey. And, um, you know, he was never a chef in the sense of, um, well, in any sense of being like uh, classically trained or even having the discipline. I, I, I know he wouldn't mind my saying that, that, um, that chefs, I think, are so famous for in their approach to work. Um, Brandon has always been like a, a musician who mm-hmm. just happened to be able to Um, make things happen in whatever he did. And so we sort of together stumbled into owning or or creating and then owning a restaurant that really truly was serving um, food that sort of bordered on what we liked to eat at home. Um, You know, certainly at the center of it was wood-fired pizza. That was the, the big thing that, that Brandon wanted to do. Um, he wanted to make really good pizza. Um, but then everything else when we opened was my territory. And I very much cooked as as we had at home. 
so, um, you know, really simple, um, seasonal, but really interesting vegetable dishes and pretty simple desserts. I mean, we opened with a chocolate chip cookie and some homemade popsicles. Mm -hmm. And, um, and by and large, it has stayed that way. Um, I only worked in the kitchen there for the first four months and then spent the next nine years um, basically um, doing sort of general admin and, and ownership tasks. But it was, I think that to work in a restaurant in any capacity, you have to have a really friendly relationship to to adrenaline and, and, and you have to be on friendly terms with chaos. And um, I am absolutely not that person and, and never was. And so um, being out of the restaurant is a tremendous relief. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that for, for me, what was always most meaningful about it is, so my background is in cultural anthropology and I, mm-hmm. I've always been, most interested in people like when I'm thinking about food like food as a way of understanding how people live what they care about what gets them out of bed in the morning and home cooking has always felt adjacent to that you know like a way of being with people being for people like being a person myself Mm -hmm. and um and I feel so I feel just I can't say it enough, like relieved to get to um, scale back my relationship with food to only being that again and not being um, beyond what I wanted. Right. And yeah, despite the book not being a food memoir, it has been regarded as such in the press because your two prior memoirs are food memoirs pretty explicitly. So being as it is a book about defining yourself on your own terms and and breaking out of boxes that the culture provides for you, you know, has that bothered you? Like, how are you defining yourself as a writer now? Um, Thank you so much for noticing that and asking about it. Um, The, you know, the book has been featured in a few articles, um, as a food memoir, and it's really perplexed me because there is nothing about it that is a food <laughs> memoir. And I haven't known how to engage with that press for that right. reason. Like it's, it's sort of more than perplexed me. It's, it's pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, I feel like it's, um, I was thinking about about, you know, how I see, is it okay for me to like veer off for just a second? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I was thinking about how, like, like when I see people mention your writing um, mm-hmm. or like recommend, you know, subscribing to your newsletter, um, people often refer to you as a food writer. Do, I mean, do, you, do you use that term for yourself? Um, I used to more than I do now. I think of myself more as a culture, culture writer now. And I do, I would rather be seen as like a nonfiction writer, you know, like a person who writes reported and personal and, you know, 
hopefully kind of immersive nonfiction, like, and not as a food writer, because I do. And then, you know, I wrestle with myself because I'm wondering, do I not like that? Because I just don't like the mm-hmm. way food writing, like manifests in the world in its most popular forms, like, because I don't see it as, you know, mm-hmm. politically and socially engaged. Um, and but, you know, I do like to write so much about other things. So it, it is a difficult box to be put in, which, you know, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole time that I did think of myself as a food writer, if I would, you know, if I would be in conversation with someone I was just, I had just met and they were like, mm-hmm. what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And then they would ask what I wrote about. I would be like, oh, well, I'm a food writer. And they would all, I mean, like 9.9 times out of 10, think it meant that I was a restaurant critic. Right. Right. And so then right away, I would be engaged in trying to like define what food writing was and wasn't. So like the the word food writing, I think um, it is, I, I think that it has always been complicated right. for me um, and has never felt that it quite fit. Like, I mean, when I was in my, when I started the my blog, which is how I, I got started writing um like as a as a an adult um as opposed to just a teenager writing angsty poetry um I mean when I started it like what I wanted most was to be a food writer in the vein of like all the food magazines I saw in my parents house but I look back on on that that wish and what I was thinking of were like um, you know, narrative pieces in right. Gourmet Magazine in the 90s. Like I was never, I was never going to be a restaurant critic and I was never going to be a recipe developer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and food writing as a term is not nuanced enough to make space for all the different ways that we can engage with food. And in fact, as you were saying, like, or as you hinted at, like food writing, I think is... Oh, is often the category of food writing it, it tends to be enforced as a right. category that is apolitical that is easy that is um readily digestible um that that is approachable and um and <clears throat> so I, i've been really i'm sorry i need to clear my throat <clears> throat> Um, you know, once I started writing, um, right away, it was very clear to me that what I had thought I was going to do, and this is on the blog, um, like 14 years ago, mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, I thought that I was going to do food writing. And so often what I was actually doing was writing about everything that orbited food right. um, in my own world. So whether that was like the people, books I was reading, film photography I was interested in, um, and that food was a way of anchoring a narrative, right. but only right. sometimes the actual narrative. And I think that um, I think that actually one thing that I do want to say, like, yeah, in the process of uh, of trying to, you know, once I had written the proposal for the fixed stars and was trying to place it with a publisher. Um, 
my being known as a food writer was a liability for me in huge ways. Right. Um, for one thing, you know, um, for like literary editors, food writing is like um, a, a, it is not respected. Right. Um, and, and then the other thing is, you know, um, of course, you know, people want you to keep doing what, what they know you can do and what they know will sell. Right. Mm -hmm. So I received a lot of feedback from people who wanted to know if there were going to be recipes in this book. And when I said that there weren't going to be, they asked me if I would put recipes in it, if they told me to. Um, I mean, it was just, it was so, like the the shoehorning was so <laughs> uh, overt. And, um, and but but what I think is really sad is that in talking about this kind of thing, what I think is really like some of the most wonderful potential of food writing, I think I, I want to be sure to mention that I actually feel like writing about food taught me how to write the way that I write today, which is that like, you know, Food writing <clears throat> is like inherently concrete and very specific writing. Like it, it insists on the specific over the general. Like right. nobody wants to read a general piece about uh, ha hanger steaks unless we're going to mm -hmm. talk about like, um, you know, uh, like the ways that cows are bred for it or the right mixture of grain for them or whether they should be grass fed or how you should cut a hanger steak. Like, but that's not the food writing that I have ever wanted to do or to read food writing. I think taught me how to drop down into a scene through like concrete information and imagery in a way that, that you have to be able to do to produce, um, you know, most types of like creative narratives. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not trained as a, as a novelist. Um, I'm not, I'm also not trained as a food writer. Um, but food writing really taught me how to do what we think of as, as writing that feels immersive and that feels real because food writing is so specific uh, because mm -hmm. food is inherently so concrete and specific. So I think yeah. that, you know, when I, when I, so go, go ahead. No, no, go, you go. <laughs> oh, I'm, I was just going to say that like, I, yeah, I teach memoir a lot. And even when I'm teaching general like craft of memoir, I find it really helpful to use prompts and examples of really good narrative food writing because it's so um, it's so clear the way that food can work as a device to mm -hmm. anchor a story or to like drop a reader down into a scene. Right, right. 
Uh, no, I was going to say that, that food writing really taught me how to write too. And I think the only reason I can write about things that aren't food now is because I spent so much time, you know, deeply, deeply embedded in just writing specifically about food. And, and just, I think, yeah, once you dive into food and you realize how much it touches everything, you realize that it also provides you the tools to discuss pretty much anything, um, which is why yeah. I think it's it's bad. I think it's bad to say that, you know, you know, food writing is shallow and et cetera, et cetera, but just because it, it so often is in terms of like what we most see with food writing. But mm -hmm. I do think that like, if you, you know, when you get, when you get deeper into it, you realize that it, it, it doesn't have to be as, as shallow as we think it is. Um, and I wish, I wish that we didn't think it was so, I mean, I wish that I felt like, oh yes, I'm a food writer, like really explained what I am because I'm same thing. I tell that to strangers all the time. It's like, no, I'm a food writer, you know, just to explain myself. But, um, I, all that it connotes is so, uh, unpleasant <laughs> to be attached well, to. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it has been like, um, I mean, you know, all, all this writing is shaped by like market forces, but I feel like, mm -hmm. Food writing in particular has has been um, I don't know I'm probably like talking about things I don't really know about but I just feel like when I think about like you know okay so the fact that we all consume food right like every single one of us human beings not all of us read novels right I mean all of us eat food not all of us read novels. I feel like food has been like sort of uh, food writing has been more like, what am I trying to say? My God, I'm really feeling the fact that I have not finished my first cup of coffee here. Um, <laughs> food, <laughs> food writing, I feel like it has somehow been more like sort of like buffeted by the winds of like the market right and has bent to it more um than some other types of writing but maybe that's because like food writing also has a useful and like prescriptive role to play right for so many people so it it like it um it brushes up against everyone in a way that we don't ask like literary fiction to do or literary nonfiction. Do you know what I mean? Right. I don't know right. if that makes no, no. any sense. No, no, that does make sense. It does make sense that there's a, there's a push to make it, you know, yeah, general and, um, you know, approachable in, in that we don't demand of other of other things like you know we you, we demand like nothing of the novel because it, a novel can be anything and the the way it mm -hmm. is written can be anything but we demand food writing be you know clear-eyed and straightforward and that I think I, I mean and I've talked a lot about this to other people that like because there hasn't been like now there is and you see so much butting up against it this like that there is cultural criticism in food now like there is criticism of yeah. the state of food writing and so people mm -hmm. are really having strong reactions to that because it's it's sort of raining on their parade I guess um, but you know, in other, in other art forms and other aspects of culture, there is that long, um, 
longstanding mm-hmm. culture of criticism amongst people. And, and I think that not having that in food has, yeah, has made it be this, this very, you know, kind of boring um, or interpreted as boring uh, genre of writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's but. a really good point. We, you know, I think about like, um, I, I just finished reading Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo. Have you read it? I haven't. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing novel. Um, it won the Booker Prize early in 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but what I was thinking about is that in her bio on the back of it, it says like she has written in like, you know, tons of different genres. I'm paraphrasing here, but I, 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 I think about um, the, the people I know who started out as novelists, let's say, mm-hmm. and have branched into other things or occasionally published personal essay or someone like Kate Christian, sorry, Kate Christensen, mm-hmm. who is primarily known as a novelist, but, um, but has done a lot of food writing in the last what five to ten years like there's no question that if you have established yourself in fiction you can make whatever crossovers you want and of course I mean all of this has to do with like I think the the way that we hold up the, the novel as the highest form of writing but you know I would like someday to have to have had a kind of career where it would say on the back of my book, like Molly Weisenberg is, you know, written in eight gazillion genres because I've never, I've always wanted to write about what I am trying to understand, like what I am engaged in grappling with. And that's never just one thing. Right. Right. No, it's very interesting. I think it's a very like U.S. idea too that that writers have to kind of stay in one lane um, for their whole careers, like and never veer out of that. I don't, and I don't, I don't have any real evidence for that other than like so many European writers that I read. It's like, oh, this person writes novels and writes literary criticism and does a radio show, and like, and there's just so much more. cross-pollination between cultural fields and and I think that like we do ourselves Mm -hmm. a disservice but I think it does feel very like U.S. to me (laughs) at this point the more I I I try and like read out yeah yeah, it's where it's like you do one thing and you do it and you never you know stray from that and if you stray from that we're going to be like trying to put you back in a box which is I think what happened with you with fixed stars which is that you completely broke out of writing food memoir but everyone was like no, food memoir. It's a food memoir. <laughs> and, and it's really interesting well, to watch and, that happen. Yeah. And, you know, I think it is totally because um, it, it, because of our feeling that something cannot succeed unless it makes money. Right. So, right. yeah, if that is our only, if that's our only measure, yeah, we, we all have to keep doing whatever we've done that has had any measure of success. And, um, and it, it's, um, God, it was really demoralizing for me. It, you know, once I had finished writing the proposal and then shopping it around and talking to a number of editors before sort of, you know, 
settling on one and moving forward with them, it took a long time for me to like unhear all the things that these editors had said to me or asked mm-hmm. of me when I had phone calls with them because, you know, like there were some of them were like really openly averse to publishing anything else that I did, no matter what it was or how much they liked the proposal. They wanted me to keep doing what they knew would be a safe bet for them. And of course they did. Like they didn't want to lose money on it, but it's so sad. Um, and, and, And it's so, it was so clear to me when I wound up with my current publisher, um, who, who, so Abrams is is only recently branching into narrative nonfiction. Um, you know, they've done a lot of incredible books um, that are art books and books that are heavily illustrated and beautifully designed. But, um, you know, I, I think that like they were actually willing to see the book for what it could be and to be really interested in it, not only as a narrative, but also as like, um, an, like an object that they wanted Mm -hmm. to allow to be beautiful. Whereas like, you know, other publishers, like I got to have no say in, in what the actual object looked like or felt like. Mm -hmm. And, um, it felt quite radical at times. Right, right. And I mean, I know you want to do other kinds of writing, but, you know, memoir has basically been your genre and, and very fruitful for you. But do you like why do you think that is? And, and, and do you think you'll step away from it? Yeah, you know, I when I started writing this most recent book, I felt really embarrassed by the fact that here I was like about to start writing a third memoir um and I still sort of struggle with that feeling like um you know like like I feel like it it feels very different to say I'm a I'm a memoirist like that seems to have sort of um uh like a a like a finite end date as opposed to saying like I'm a novelist or um, I write cultural criticism Mm -hmm. I feel like at some point I should probably get over it and move on (laughs) Um, so I don't know you know because the truth is like I have always used writing as a mechanism for trying to make sense of my life Mm -hmm. and to figure out what I'm going to do about this life. And, um, and I think that people do that in many different genres and I happen to do it by writing pretty, pretty directly about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to think that maybe I will find some other ways of doing that, but I don't really have, um, I've never had an impulse toward fiction. Mm-hmm. I just right. haven't. So I don't know. I think that I am a nonfiction writer and for as much as I would like there to be a different word for what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I think that 
I am sort of a serial writer about my own experience and and where it kind of rubs up against the world. Right. Well, in this book, there's, you know, I I, I was actually like, oh, wow, it's odd to read a memoir that has so many endnotes. Like, you know, and so I do think that this, this, this memoir is super engaged with the world and with other writing in a way that like most memoirs are not. Um, I don't know if that was like a thing you had in mind going in or... Yeah, no, I really, um, so when I was, when I was, when I thought that I was going to wind up being in, in an, an academic and being in anthropology, mm-hmm. um, I always felt very torn about like how to feel that I could be of, of use somehow, because in truth, the part that I loved the most about being a graduate student in anthropology was like being presented with all of these different writers ways of understanding the world and their theories and their frameworks and their um you know like i i I just sort of wanted to spend my whole life having someone say to me here are some books that you should read um, that will make you see the world differently and let's talk about them. And um, of course, that is not what it means to be uh, an anthropologist in <laughs> academia. Um, and so it has taken me a while to figure out how to, how to like make that same, like that same, how to make that part of me um how to give that part of me a home in my writing because yeah, food writing, I didn't feel like it it didn't have space for me to, uh, to talk about, you know, um, Foucault's ideas on the history of sexuality, which had been so like mind blowing to me in grad school and things like that. Um, But I, I missed, I missed getting to steep myself in the world of, um, of ideas and theories. Um, however, like unmarketable they were, I missed getting to steep myself in the, in the world of like ideas and thought for the sake of understanding, not for the sake of, um, of, of selling something or changing necessarily, um, policy. And so when I started, when I started thinking that I might write the book that became the fixed stars, I I started thinking about it because I was doing so much reading at that point um, about queerness and about um, like historical movements in, in queerness and ways of understanding sexuality and I was trying to understand my own life, mm-hmm. kind of doing like a personal anthropology on myself. And so then to take that and and actively make it talk on the page with my own writing, I mean, that was like, that was what I wanted to do with this book. And, mm-hmm. um, and I just am so grateful that I landed with um, with a publisher who who let me do that because 
wow, there were a lot who didn't want to let me do that. Uh, that's so disappointing, but not surprising yeah. at all. Yeah. No, <laughs> they, they don't want anyone yeah. outside their boxes. Yeah. No. Well, for you, mm-hmm. is cooking a political mm-hmm. act? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, I, you can't, you can't, uh, yes. I mean, at the most basic level, you can't source food, uh, access food in any way without entering into these relationships of power and, and privilege. Um, mm-hmm. and, and for me, beyond that, I mean, beyond my, um, beyond the, the thought that, that I think it's so important to put into, um, you know, where we put our dollars in terms of um, sourcing food, supporting local restaurants and local businesses and things like that. For me, uh, because I am so much of a, um, a home body and a home cook, I, I more and more feel like cooking is a way for me of asserting like the value of the domestic sphere and care work in a way that uh, that like is not supported in our broader political climate um you know i mean i think about especially since the pandemic started right and you know i i have um a, a spouse who does does not feel as proficient at cooking as i do and so i do pretty much all the cooking and you know the number of meals that I have prepared and the amount of care that I because I have a more flexible job as a writer than my spouse does as a psychotherapist um the the time that I put into into cooking and and doing care work for our child and caring for our home like, can you even imagine if those things were compensated? Like, right. Um, so yeah, it feels hugely political to me. Right. The fact that I spend so many, that I care about, um, about caring for my family this way and spending our money on groceries in a thoughtful way. And then that I'm, that I'm still worrying about where money's going to come from. Um, It feels so messed up to me that, um, that, that the domestic work that actually fuels the world um, doesn't, it isn't valued in, in this world. So I don't, yeah, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that, (laughs) But yeah, I feel like when I when I cook, I am within my family um, creating um, a moment and creating a life that um, that I'm choosing to put real care and time into, despite the fact that um, if the world had its way. Um, uh, no one would care about it, but I care about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. 
Oh, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. <laughs> and I love that because so many, so few people have given me an answer that uh, recognizes the the domestic labor um, that is uncompensated. And so I, th- I think that that's such a good um, addition to this conversation around around the politics of food. We have to have conversations about how it manifests in the home for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think especially, you know, it, like, in this period when we're all sort of in and out of lockdown, like, you know, and I, I have a child who's in second grade and who mm-hmm. is, you know, whose school is online right now. Like, yeah, I, I, I am one of those people, you know, you read about in articles, like how, you know, where is my career going to go? Because right <laughs> now my entire world is consumed with um, shepherding my child through school and, um, cooking 21 meals a week. Right. Right. Um, at, but, but there's never been any sort of conversation, at least in, in U S policy about how we, um, how we, how we are actively going to value that, like the work that underlies, um, keeping us all alive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for coming on. Oh my gosh. Um, it is such a pleasure talking with you. I love reading your newsletter every week and, um, and I'm so happy to become a paying subscriber. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, again, um,